and I don't know, if you're like me, I hear about the incarnation, and I'm like, yeah, but did you see what Steph Curry did last night? <laughs> that was amazing. And, and he is. But this is amazing. And it's supposed to recapture this. And my other thing is this. If, if you're here and you're trying to figure out Christianity, we never make assumptions um, in RUF that you've got to figure it out. I don't have to figure it out yet. Or even if you grew up all around kind of Christianity, you started thinking, like, this really is ridiculous. My pitch to you is this. Start with the incarnation. Like, if you're trying to figure out Christianity, start with Jesus. He is the centerpiece. And, you, and sometimes, this sounds so simple, but sometimes it really is this simple. If God really did become man 2,000 years ago, that changes everything. Like, start there. I'm not saying you won't still have questions about science. Or you, there, there might be some real questions about the problem of evil. We're actually going to talk about some of those uh, tomorrow. But if you start with the incarnation and who Jesus is, and you run those questions starting with the, through the grid of the incarnation, maybe not every particular answer will come to you, but maybe some things will make sense in the light of who Jesus is. Like, I can't answer all the questions about the problem of evil. But you have a God who really took on human flesh and took the assaults of evil himself. That's just different. That's just amazing. So the Bible really does in some ways answer the, the, the question of the problem of evil, not with just these propositions, but it tells you the story of Jesus, the true story. It says, watch, take it in. And so C.S. Lewis, um, he's got this little book of essays called... Uh, uh, God in the Docks. I think one of these quotes is on there. He talks about how the incarnation is the grand miracle. That it is the thing that makes sense of everything else. And he said, you know, this quote's on your back. I'm just going to kind of sum it up. But he, he says, suppose you had before you a manuscript of some great work, either a symphony or a novel, and then a person comes to you saying, here's a new bit of manuscript I found. It is the here, uh, it's the central passage of that symphony or the central chapter of that novel. The text is incomplete. Without it. I've got the missing passage, which is really the center of the whole work. So just imagine, imagine that you have this novel that you love, that you love, and, and the the central middle chapter that's going to make sense of everything is missing, and somebody says, "Here it is." How would you know if that's really true? Only if you inserted it in and as you read it, it began to make sense of everything else. And C.S. Lewis said that is how the incarnation works. Like, how do you know it's true? I, like, you just can't test it scientific probability. Like, it only happened once, and it's never going to happen again. But if you start with the incarnation and you set it in the middle, and you start reading your Bible through the lens of the incarnation, it just makes sense of everything else. Oh, this is why God is always saying he wants to be with us. Because he takes on human flesh. This is how God can dwell with sinful people. Because he's going to become a human. And it just makes sense of, of the rest of the Bible story. And I would suggest it actually starts making sense of your longings and your desires and what you know it means to be loved. So would you, I guess my, my pitch to you, would you test it? Would you test the incarnation the next two days and see if it doesn't fit? begin to make sense of everything else. So let me uh, let me pray for us and we'll we'll dive in and solve this great mystery in 45 minutes. So Father, um, it really is a privilege to be here um, talking uh, uh, about you, but Lord, what uh, they need to hear is not uh, some ramblings uh, from me. They need to hear from your word. Stuff like this is so high above us that unless uh, your spirit reveals it to us, unless we're convinced of it, we won't receive it, it'll be, it'll just be too high above us. Um, so Lord, there are a lot of difficult concepts, I pray that you'd be kind and gracious to us, you lead us to weariness and confusion and even sin and convince us that whatever else, you are a God that really does want to be with us. Uh, that would be worth it this morning, we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Alright, I'm going to read John 1, 1 through 5 and 14 and then Galatians 4. Brian. Yes. Can you ask someone to turn up the air conditioner right here, like a couple degrees, so this will knock off? Yes. It's, it's right there. Yeah. Allie yeah. Harmon. Just my future intern. I'm going to boss you around. All right. Turn that on. That's good. Right, so just... Okay. Well done. Past your first desk. 
<laughs> All right. If I get too soft, just raise your hand, Brett, and I'll project again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In Galatians 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Grass withers, flowers fade, word of God stand forever. Alright, we're going to try to do big picture today. Kind of what is the incarnation? Hang with me, it's going to kind of be put your thinking caps on. Tomorrow, I mean I hope today's practical. I hope you see that there's actually nothing more practical than seeing Jesus. But tomorrow we're going to try to be intensely practical and show how the incarnation actually speaks to your depression, uh, to uh, to your doubts and things like that. But got to go big picture. What is the incarnation? Starting with scripture, John 1, the word became flesh, right? The word, if you read back at the beginning of John 1, it already tells you that this word is God, was with God. The word is God the Son, the eternal Son of God. And then in verse 13, Never mind, Alan. You didn't do that well. Thank you, bro. Um, you didn't. Um, then verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Okay. Notice it doesn't say the Word, Lagos, right? God the Son. It doesn't say He became God. He always has been God. God has no beginning. God the Son has no beginning. He has no end. So the Word is always going to be 100% God. He cannot change. That's impossible. But 2,000 years ago, in this Middle Eastern country, a young Jewish female's womb has life, and the Word becomes flesh. The Greek word for sarx, okay, which, which is the word for weakness. He takes on human frailty. So God the Son takes on human nature, he becomes man, and he becomes the God-man, Christ Jesus. But he never ceases to be God, right? We're not so much going to talk about his divinity, we're going to more focus on his humanity, but you've got to keep that in mind. So he adds to his deity, but it does not take away from his deity. He adds to it a real, tangible human nature, right? Thomas could touch his flesh, he could hold you, and it was a real embrace, and so at one particular decisive moment in history, and from that moment on, the Son of God will be 100% God and 100% man, united in one person called the hypostatic union. We'll come back to that. You can throw that word around on the beach. People will think you're either weird or awesome. <laughs> but stop right there and think for just a moment. We just dipped our foot in, and, and what we have said is that the God of this universe entered history. Like, what does that tell you about who the real God is? He actually enters this world that he made. This world that we have actually made full of suffering, that we have broken, that we've made a sad place and full of pain. Yes, there's tons of joy in life as well. But he comes into this world. And just that should be amazing. Because what that means is Christianity is not just it's not just ideas. It's not like a set of propositions that you've got to think about and figure out, though it involves that. We're talking about things that happened in actual history. Like at a real period of time with a real woman named Mary, at a real place, he walked this earth. And yes, this is his world, but from our perspective... What it means is that God came into our story. <clears throat> he came into our world. And so the incarnation really is this declaration that God has entered our realm. And we just have to reckon with that. We have to deal with that. And so, again, C.S. Lewis talks about this. He, look, he says, examine other religions. Examine other ideas. Christianity isn't the only thing that claims that miracles have happened. But only Christianity claims that a miracle is central 
to what you believe. Right? Whether, whether Muhammad moved the mountain or not, which is claimed, if you take that away, it doesn't change the centrality of what he came to do because he said, listen to my teaching. But Christianity hinges on this, that 2,000 years ago, God the Son, the second person of the Godhead, enters into the very world that he created in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And if you don't believe that, you lose Christianity. The supernatural, the, the, the grand miracle is where we start. It's central to everything. So, I want to talk a little about, here's your amazing outline. I need to put on a paper, I'm sorry. What does it mean that he took on flesh? While continuing to be God, he became a man. Alright. This is uh, somewhere in your handout. It's from the Shorter Catechism, question 37. How did Christ, being the Son of God, become man? Christ, the Son of God, became man by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary, of her substance, born of her, yet without sin. So there's a lot of the kind of hedges you need to, to stay... Uh, Orthodox a little, alright? So first, he takes a true body. So he adds to, God the Son adds to himself a real, material, Jewish male body. So when Jesus is conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, it is supernatural. Okay, the Holy Spirit comes upon Mary, whatever that means, Luke's wording. And with Mary, here we go, makes a contribution to the genetic code of Jesus, but connects it with Mary's genetic code. Alright? So one half of Jesus' chromosomes come from his mother, and the other half supernaturally comes from the Holy Spirit, but fully human. So, I don't know. I mean, Jesus probably, maybe he had Mary's eyes. Right? Maybe he had her nose. But there would have been some resemblance because he was of Mary's flesh and supernaturally imparted Holy Spirit-given flesh. So, then, here you go, from that point on, after the conception, like the Son of God really was an embryo. It's amazing. Everything else, the pregnancy and the birth, everything else is natural. That doesn't freak you out. Jesus, the Son of God, is literally being sustained by an umbilical cord in the womb of the Virgin Mary. If that gets wrapped around his throat, he dies. That's how dependent he is. When he comes out of the womb, if Mary doesn't feed him, he dies. He really does have this human body that's limited, dependent, just like, in many ways, mine and yours. He would have looked like a first century Jewish infant. Because that's what he is. He's wrapped in rags because the one who created the son, really if his mom doesn't wrap him in rags, he will die from cold. This is who he is. He has a specific genetic DNA that's just for Jesus. 100% human. So Donald McLeod says, Jesus had a body that was exactly the same biochemical composition as our own. Exactly the same anatomy, physiology, same central nervous system, same sensitivity to pain. This is the Son of God. So, yeah, like when Jesus walked around on a hot Palestinian summer, he slept. He had body in him. This is who he is. When Jesus got a rot in his sandal walking to Capernaum, it rubbed a blister. He's just not immune to that stuff. And we got to remember that, because I think a lot of times we're going to come back to this, but we belittle Jesus' suffering because we say, we, yeah, yeah, well, he's God. Yeah, but he's 100% human. You know this. It's human to flinch from pain. That's your reaction. So when Jesus marches into pain, that is amazing. Everything in him is screaming, run away. But he marches in for you and for me. He is a hundred percent human. So, what's the difference then? Why, like, why this virgin birth? Because he's like us in every way, except he is without sin. Here's the big difference. This is why Jesus is conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. He has no earthly father lineage speaking. Why is that important? If you go back to Genesis, it's quick. 
Genesis 5, 3, Adam has a son, Seth, in his own likeness. The way God had made the world is that we is that we'll always create people in our own likeness. And after Adam and Eve sinned, everybody that gets brought into the world comes into the world after Adam's likeness. Sinful, rebellious. Romans 5 talks about that, that sin entered through one man and death through sin, and many died by the trespass of one man, and the death reigned. So through the disobedience of Adam, all coming through normal lineage, inherit his sin. Okay, I realize it creates some other questions. But, we don't have time. All of us, born in the likeness of Adam, because of Adam we sin, and because of Adam we die. And we add to it all of our own sin. So Jesus is going to be fully human, yet be without sin, he could not have an earthly father. He could not be born after the likeness of, of Adam in that way. So the unbroken line of sinners finally stops with Jesus. Because God, not Joseph, is his, is his father. And this, so when Jesus is an embryo, there's this new race of man that's going to that breaks into the world and is going to produce people after his own kind, made in his likeness. They're going to become like him. This, by the way, is the reason I think that the promise... You know, Genesis 3.15, which makes the first promise of the gospel, what does it say? It doesn't say the seed of a man is going to crush the head of a serpent. It says the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of a serpent. Strange way to talk. Just talking about this. It was going to be Mary's flesh. And see, that could be, watch twice, it's some of the weird stuff that Jesus says, right? Remember when he's at a, uh, at a wedding... And uh, Ray talked about this, and he creates like the best wine you've ever ever tasted. And his uh, Mary, his mom, asks him a question, and he says, "Woman, it's not my hour." And also, when he's hanging on the cross in John 19, he calls her woman. And it, uh, why does he call her woman? It seems so insensitive. See, what he's doing is he's claiming to be the seed of the woman. He's reminding people who he is. He's the one. He's the new race. He's the new humanity that's coming to redeem us. So he has this true body. All right. Then he has what the catechism calls a reasonable soul. Just think human soul. Right? Because what makes us human is not just that we have this tangible, physical body. We really are body and soul. The unseen. Right? So what makes you human do you have a body? And you have a human psychology and emotions and things like that. So, Jesus had, had and has all these things. I, I'm speaking of the present tense because we're thinking 2,000 years ago, but he still has these things. So he had, a hum, he had and has a human mind, right? Luke 2 talks about the fact that Jesus increased in wisdom and stature. Which meant this. Like, this is crazy to think about. Jesus as an infant to a toddler to a teenager to an adult his mind was actually growing in capacity to learn things. He's becoming better informed as he grows up and is accumulating information, common sense, understanding the world that he lives in, understanding God the Father. Right? How did Jesus learn carpentry? From his dad. He didn't like sneak off into a corner and like switch on God mode and like speed read this book and like say, I got it. He like sat there and practiced with his dad and learned because he's 100% human. He learned like any of us learn. Right? And so we see Jesus, I mean, Jesus is just oozing scripture all the time. Like he's just quoting it left and right. How did he learn that? Well, what I used to think was, well, duh, he's God. So it was just like imparted to him. Well, no, he learned it like you and I was by listening to his mom. Telling stories by sitting in boring sermons and processing the Word of God by memorizing it. That's how he learned it. The only difference is he didn't resist it like we do because he didn't have the sinful flesh that was pushing against it. But he learned it as he grew up. That's why, as a 12 year old, he still doesn't know as much as he does as a 30 year old, but as a 12 year old, he is fascinating the Pharisees in the temple as, he, as he's understanding the scriptures. Because he's just so ahead of any, any other 12-year-old. Because he has just perfectly been studying the scriptures. But he still has a long way to go. So, right, this is when it like gets crazy. Is God omniscient? Yes. Does God know everything? Yes. 
But did Jesus have to learn things? Yes. He takes on a human mind and he has to learn. So you know that strange verse where Jesus says, um, he's talking about the second coming, he says, but of that day or hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son of Man, but only the Father. But Jesus, how do you not know when you're coming back? Because he has a truly human, human mind. So he is dependent on God the Father revealing things to him by the Spirit just like you and I are. And it just hadn't been revealed to him. So he doesn't know. And he's okay with it. That's amazing. That's a human mind. Second of all, he has human emotions. Uh, we're going to talk more about this tomorrow, but man, we just like, man, we feel so guilty about our emotions sometimes. Uh, we just feel terrible. And sure, they're distorted by, by sin, but to be emotional is to be human. And Jesus is truly human, so he experiences the whole range of human emotions. There is joy in doing his Father's will, there is joy in laughter. When he, when he sees his disciples getting it, he takes great joy in that. So, But it was pure. There's just this selfless delight he has. But, but he also knew sorrow. And his sorrow was greater than ours. Because his sorrow was pure. He weeps at Lazarus' tomb. I'm sure he wept for what we think when his, when his earthly father Joseph died at a young age. He was called a man of sorrows because he was human, but because also he was sinless. So he was utterly pure. So, he knew how things were supposed to be. And he loved this world and people so much that when he saw what was wrong with it, it just made him weep like nobody else. Right, I watched my, my grandmother who, man, I just, I love her. I watched her die from Lou Gehrig's disease. It's one of the most cruel diseases I've ever watched. It just literally kills your nervous system and you just wither away. I remember just sitting with her and crying and being mad and being so sad. Because I knew this wasn't the way things are supposed to be. I love my mom in law. But you know what? There's thousands of other people that get Lou Gehrig's disease and I've never cried about them. I just don't know them. And when Jesus is a man full of sorrows, you just realize he has this pure love and this pure humanity. He can't cut himself off from the sufferings of the world. He can't do it. He's just taking it in. He's weeping because he knows how things are supposed to be. And he really loves us and he loves this world. He knew fear in the Garden of Gethsemane. He sweats drop of love because he really is, uh, drops of blood because he really is afraid. He's afraid. This is, this is crazy. He's afraid of God the Father at that moment and the wrath that's coming. He knew loneliness. Think about the Garden of Gethsemane. He really needed his close friends. He wanted them there, and they abandoned him. And he felt that. He had anger. He had contentment. And so I'm asking you to start seeing the Son of God, Jesus, on, on the street level. Like a real human. Like really like you. He's social. He had, he had a personality. Somewhere he would have landed on the Myers-Briggs. I don't know. If you're arrogant, you probably think he has your personality. If you like hate your personality, you, you just assume it wasn't like yours. But it was this distinct personality that was also perfect. Um, I mean, I, you know, I don't always know what to do with this, but you realize that Jesus, he was closer to some people than others. Like, there were some people that made him feel at ease and comfortable more than other people. I don't know what to do with that, but... I don't know. That encourages me because there's just some people I click with better than others. There's some people that make me feel more comfortable than others. And yeah, that's part of being human. And then he had then he had a human will. I'm not going to go into this, but just he made decisions in the same way that you and I do. Like logic. He thought through. He planned. He submitted to his parents. He submitted to God's law, but he did all of it without sin. Okay, He didn't have this just divine will that superseded everything. He really made decisions as with his mind, with his emotions. But the difference, right, and keep saying this, is he is without sin. So when, right, when it said to err is human, it's actually not true. Sin is not an essential part of humanity. It's not. So there was no sinful flesh in Jesus. There's no propensity to sin, there's no affinity with sin, and there certainly was no sin, a stain of sin on his reputation. But in every other way, he was made just like us, right? That's what Hebrews, uh, what was that, 2.17 says, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, every way. 
We're going to talk more about this tomorrow, but that is amazing. That means there are so many things that go on in your life. And they're bad. But the double pain is you think that you're alone. You think nobody understands. Even your closest friend, you realize, can't meet you in this. Jesus can. Jesus has met the depths of sorrow. Jesus Jesus has felt the rejection of people. Jesus has met the depths of shame in ways that you haven't even, I promise, he knows what it's like to be you. That's amazing. He really does. So here's the incarnation. Jesus Christ, fully man, 100% man, but he also never left behind his divinity, so he's also fully God. His body is created, his soul is created, not his divinity, that's always been there. So, when you look at baby Jesus, or you look at teenage Jesus, sorry, I just had a little fair on I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> or you look at adult Jesus, or Jesus in the tomb, you're always right to say, that is the Lord. That's him. The creator of the universe is also the one that dies. Those two go together. So think about this. This is fascinating. Um, by the way, I've stolen this, so much of this from Just look on your sheet. I can't even give credit for it. So many people. I can't even remember who this came from. Right? There's a prophecy in Malachi okay, about the virgin birth. Alright? So this will kind of blow your mind. So why did Mary and Joseph end up going to Bethlehem? Well, because Caesar Augustus, the most powerful man on earth, right, issues this decree that makes them go to Bethlehem. But why does he issue a decree? Because Caesar actually wasn't the most powerful man on earth. He sends them to Bethlehem because a fetus in the womb of Mary has directed Caesar to send them to Bethlehem. Right? That's because they're fulfilling prophecy. Yes, that same embryo that is 100% dependent on his mother's umbilical cord is also directing world history at that moment. I don't completely understand that, but it's amazing. I mean, he's so weak and dependent that he's been sustained by his mother's diet and heartbeat, and yet he's also more powerful than Caesar Augustus. So, fully God, fully man... Here you go, here's your big theological word to throw around if you're going to lose your friends. <laughs> Hypostatic union, okay? How, well, this, I think it's on your first page. Uh, back here, it says Westminster Confession of Faith. Look at uh, section two. Uh, the second sentence where it says, so that, all right, Talking about Jesus, so that the whole, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person, without conversion, composition, or confusion. Which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. All right. So look at Hebrews two, Hebrews four. It's on the front of your, your sheet. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Hebrews 2.17 Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, and to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So again, we've got to keep putting our theme caps on, in some ways, we're not going to completely get it. But the human nature and the divine nature of Jesus are inseparably joined in the person of Jesus in hypostatic union. So what that means is Jesus is always God and always man, but each nature okay, that he has doesn't confuse, it doesn't bleed over, he doesn't borrow from the other one. Each nature has its attributes, okay? So his divinity really is omniscient. His humanity isn't, okay? But what that means is Jesus never uses his divinity to cheat, okay? He never uses, he never reaches back and pulls from his divinity to get himself out of suffering. To make himself kind of less human so he can kind of skirt through this world and avoid the pains of this life. He only uses resources, this is what's amazing, that are available to you and me. He functions fully human. He really shares in our humanity. 
So, when Jesus needs to get to Galilee, he can't just apparate, right? Your daughter fans? He can't do it. He can't fly, because that's not humanity on this fallen and broken earth. So he walks. And his muscles get tired. Now, God never gets tired, right? So his divinity doesn't get weary, but his humanity does. So his humanity doesn't make his divinity tired, but his divinity doesn't make his humanity immune from being tired. Does that kind of of make sense? So you find Jesus thirsty and tired sitting there by a well when he meets a woman. The living water itself becomes thirsty. And he doesn't borrow from each nature, but they are unified in one person. Um, So we're going to talk about how Jesus doesn't know some things. But sometimes it... What is that? So Jesus, one time uh, before the Last Supper, he tells two of his disciples to go, and they'll see someone carrying a jug of water, and ask that person... That the teacher uh, needs a room uh, for the Passover, and they'll take him there. Well, how did he know that? Well, I guess he's got no. He knew it. And this, how did the prophet Jeremiah know things? Because the Holy Spirit revealed things of the Father to him. So Jesus knows that by the power of the Spirit from the Father. Jesus is just always learning things supernaturally in one sense that are necessary to his to his mission, but only supernatural in the sense that it's granted by the Holy Spirit. He's still fully human. So this is crazy, okay? This really is nice. This is, I'm going to quote Donald McLeod because I'm not even sure how to think about this. And I just assume he's right. <laughs> I have a finite mind. I, even in glory, your mind is still going to be finite and limited. So does Jesus. So Christ's glorified human mind, are you ready? does not fully understand the glory of his divine nature. There are complexities to Jesus' own being that he just finds eternally fascinating. Jesus is a depth unto himself that he cannot figure out completely. Because his glorified human mind doesn't become infinite and omniscient. How did Jesus do miracles? We think, well, yeah, he's got... Sure, but he's the God-man. Acts 10.38 says this, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and he went about doing good and healing all. Yes, he's God, but he's the perfect human being with the full anointing of the Spirit. He does miracles by the power of the Spirit. He does miracles, this kind of sounds like yours, he doesn't like Moses and Elijah did, as a real human, dependent on the power of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus needed the Holy Spirit to accomplish his mission to redeem us and to save us. And at the same time, those two natures are in one person. And so the shortest way I can explain that is that means that we don't get to divide them. You don't get to say, oh, well, look at Jesus loving that prostitute. That's human love. That's not divine love. No, it's always in one person. So that, like, That is how the God-man loves prostitutes. That is the God-man suffering. Right? It's always one person. It is one agent of action. We can't make him into two persons, okay? So, that is my best shot at giving you uh, the second great mystery of the world. Any... I'm going to talk for, you know, 15 minutes about some implications of this, and we'll talk tomorrow about implications. But are there any questions about... The theology, yes. So, Lysiam uh, explained something about the noetic effects of sin. Yes. Was Jesus subjected to that? Yes. Gosh, I remember. Corbin, what's the word of the noetic effects of sin? Isn't that the, uh, the miseries of this life because of, because of sin? I think that's right. I, I do it. No, I looked it up on... Oh. And it, well, it said it was like how it affects your mind specifically, so I was uh, just wondering how that falls into place. If Jesus was affected by the noetics effects of the sin, um, I don't think so. Jesus was affected in the sense of he walked this earth with all the miseries and all the pains and all the effects of the fall in the sense that it had done this world. But his mind, uh, no, was not 
limited in the sense of ours by a by sin. So that's why he's so far ahead of the game. It's not because he doesn't have a human mind, it's been unaffected yeah. by sin, I think. So affected by the curse of the fall, but not sin? Correct. That'd be the way. Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, so, if Jesus is fascinated with the air back on for just a second, I'll start. Look at that. If Jesus is fascinated with the eternal and by, by like his own mysteries, what was it like before he was human? Because he's always been God, but he hasn't always been human. Yeah. So, before, I mean, there might be a way that you could say this is, this is what the Trinity is. They are always fascinated by serving each other. But his divinity never changes. So, what, like, what changed about divinity when it takes on human nature? Nothing. It's still, say, like, it's still an omniscient, infinite, eternal mind. So he had, so he had, like, the mind and still some characteristics of a human before he was man? Well, in the sense of, if you say it's a characteristic of human, I would say, Humanity has characteristics of God. Like when He makes us in His image, there are things that He is He is created in a way that we can reflect who He is. So joy, sorrow, things like that. Yeah, but okay. I'd say God's the starting point, not man. So anything about us that is like His life is because of who God is. Okay, yeah. Yes, one more. Um, so like, if Jesus is born and He has to He has to learn, He has to grow up, He finds the growth capacity. How does He learn that He's Jesus? Yeah. That makes sense. Like, how does he know it's awesome. that he's visited the earth for his purpose? Yeah. That's right, man. He learns it. This is this really is cool, right? So I don't you don't I don't think you have Jesus at eight like walking around saying I'm saved for the world. Right? Because he has the capacity of an eight year old. I know the capacity of an eight year old is. And, uh, um, but, but it is without some effect, so he's, so he's far ahead. So, how does he learn? He learns it. Here we go. The studying scripture. Three, learning from the teachers around him. This is crazy. Probably the Pharisees who rejected him, who didn't notice him, actually taught him about himself. They'd be teaching the old scripture. But he, he did. Uh, and so he's being raised in the scriptures. He also had the Holy Spirit from birth working in him. Uh, and so that's how he figures it out. So he is come, there's a process of him coming to understand who he is and what his mission is. So at age, you know, basically at age 30, when he gets anointed by the Spirit of baptism, that's not him, also he has the Spirit. He's always had the Spirit, but that's the anointing of his public mission. You're not being anointed Messiah, go do it. He's ready. He knows he knows who he is. If it's ready, he's ready to go. So, crazy to think about. It's cool. Yes, Alan. I know you said one more, but um, so does that mean that all the miracles that Jesus did, like any of the prophets could have Well, Jesus actually looks right at is it Peter and says, greater things than I will you do. He's like, you will do greater things than I. Um, so yes, there could have been... So, what's he saying? He's saying, actually... What's coming is going to be greater than me because what I'm doing isn't anything that other humans can't do by the power of the Spirit. So, yeah. And I guess we take him at his word when you find his disciples coming after actually do some more, more amazing miracles than Jesus. What he says. So. Now, you don't, here we go. Now, why did the prophet, now Jesus does more miracles than, than, than the prophets do. Why? I would say not necessarily because of human capability, but because. What the Bible's about. All I mean, everything is preparing the way for Jesus. So it's always moving from a less than to a greater than. So you have these prophets that are doing miracles, preparing the way for the prophets, the king. So in that way, they don't do them. But you have it done by the power of the same and the winning spirit. So. Kind of mind-boggling. All right, well, let me uh, let me give you a few uh, implications to hang your hat on. Uh, this is what we'll talk about. A lot tomorrow, more simply. But why all this? Like, why do we go at lengths to even think about his humanity? Three things. One, if this is true, it has to, like, that has to mean that God wants to be known. He's a revealer. Right? C.S. Lewis again talks about this when 
I think in the 60s when this Russian, uh, Russians were actually the first people in space, a very communist, very atheist country, and I can't remember if it was the first or not, or the prime minister or somebody, basically when the first Russian cosmonaut came back, they had this big uh, PR, you know, conference, and somebody made the statement, hey, I've been up into the heavens, and I've looked around, and God is not there, right? God's supposedly up there, I went up there, he's not there. And C.S. Lewis had this incredible little response where he said, well, he said that would be like Hamlet walking up into an attic and saying Shakespeare doesn't exist. He's not up here. Right? He says it's a whole different plane. How is Hamlet going to know that Shakespeare exists? You tell me. Shakespeare wrote Hamlet, by the way. You <laughs> old miss folk who don't read the only way, right, that Hamlet could know Shakespeare's existence is if Shakespeare writes information about himself into the story. That's the only way. He has to reveal himself. And God has. But a lot of times what we think is he's only wrote information, and so we start thinking of things like grace and love and mercy as these like things that God drops. But grace and mercy and love, it's a person. It's Jesus. God did better than write information in the story. He wrote himself. He showed up. He walked this earth. He is the revelation of God. He has revealed himself beyond our wildest imaginations. And so just think about this. Like, do you ever sit around and think, I do, and I, I still struggle with doubts. You know? and sometimes I just think, if God would just show up, I would finally believe. Like, I just wouldn't struggle anymore. I just need a little more information. Why does God seem like he is hiding? I want to know. Don't you see what the incarnation is saying? And I'm, I say this with tenderness, but God did show up beyond anybody's imaginations, and we killed him. Like he showed up, and we didn't recognize him, and we killed him. And so the the incarnation is saying the problem is not revelation. The problem is something within us. We don't like God. We don't want him to be true. But the incarnation is God saying, come, I want you to know me. I've come to you. I've entered into your world. And just hear me say this. He isn't scared about what you will discover in him. And sometimes I think that's true. You know, I'll, get, I'll ask these questions or I'll get really angry and I'll think, well, what about if I discover God's evil? Or what about, he's not scared about that. He's not. Look at the incarnation. He became man. The more you get to know him, the more you'll see his glory. He's a giver. He's a sharer. He loves you like no one else. He took on a body and he died for you. He's not scared what you're going to get to know about him. Dive in. It's fascinating. Second of all, uh, well, never mind. He becomes man so that he can be our mediator, right? Big question, why become human? Why did God become human throughout uh, the ancient church? Why the God-man? The short answer is because man incurred the debt of sin, so man alone should have to pay. But God is the only one who's able to save us. So the incarnation screams this. You cannot save yourself. You cannot save yourself. It's only by grace. Right? And again, every other religion has some prophet or sage that shows up as the founder of their religion. What do they say? Here's how you have eternal life. Obey my teachings. Do X, Y, Z. Do this stuff. Jesus never points to the way. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He says, salvation is bound up in what I'm doing and in knowing me. So 1 Timothy 2 says, there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He will save us from our sins. Salvation only happens if he is fully human and fully God. Because man has rebelled, man has sinned, the wages of sin is death. And so it has to be a man that dies. Right? In the Old Testament, the high priest that would go in and make the sacrifices, they had to be Levites. They had to share in the blood of the Israelites. That was the point. And when they come and they bring this goat and the sheep's blood, Hebrews tells us it was not good enough. It was not removing sin. It has to be human flesh and blood that shares in our nature. 
And so when Jesus goes to the cross, he is fully human. A human has to die. But he has to be pure. If he sinned like anybody else, then he's up there dying for his own sin. But if he hasn't sinned, he must be dying for somebody else's sin. Exactly. It's for mine and it's for yours. And when our sin covers Jesus, he looks so much like us that God the Father treats him as if he's made of you. And he crushes him for it. So the humanity of Jesus means that you trust Jesus when you trust him as your substitute. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. None. It went on Jesus. A real human died for him. All the excruciating pain, all the depths of hell went on Jesus. He took all your shame. So Ricky Jones says this. He, he, faced, he went and faced God the Father as the worst sinner the world has ever seen. He feared it, and he feared death. He will bear it with a pure heart and infinite capacity for pain. We numb it. Jesus refused to numb the pain because he was going to endure it as fully human. But, but he has to be God too. Because only God could die for the sins of a multitude that no man can number. Only God can make that kind of payment. It's the blood of the God-man that covers all of our sin. So he takes on our nature and becomes our sin offering. And he stands in the place of outer darkness where you and I, if you're in Christ, will never have to go. There's no comfort there. It's the place of absolute why. Why? Why have you forsaken me? He bears such a burden that the world will never know. And you can just know that whatever's going on in your life, you will never go beyond that pain. You'll never go into that kind of darkness. Because Jesus went into it for you. And here's the other side. He has to be human to be our obedience. Right? He's not just my death substitute. He doesn't just pay for my sins. I also have to be righteous. Right? I, I ask this question all the time. I love asking questions, but I'll say... As hard a picture as this is, if Jesus were to be nailed to a cross as a five-year-old toddler for your sins, would you be saved? Most of us say yes. Actually, no. We need more than just innocence. We need to be fully righteous. Right? I, I need more than just to be forgiven of my sins. I actually have to, Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And so we have to have, to be right with God, tested holiness through trial. If Jesus had died as a five-year-old, there isn't a pure, intact righteousness that he's earned for 33 years of his life that he can hand to us. So Jesus fulfills the law as a human in every stage of life perfectly because you and I don't. And he hands it to us. Right, so my five-and-a-half-year-old Amy, she's awesome. And we're just kind of going through all kinds of stuff with her. She, I mean, we had an episode two days ago where she just angry, like just angry because we told her she couldn't do something that she wanted to do. I don't know, it's like somehow she ends up like kicking the wall in a room, you know. Her hope, my hope for her, is that Jesus obeyed perfectly as a five-year-old in her place. Because he did. And you realize the obedience of a five-year-old is different than a 20-year-old, right? I mean, Annie isn't really fighting sexual temptation, right? That just, that just doesn't come yet. But she is fighting doing what we say when she doesn't understand why she can't do it. Jesus had to do that. And he submitted to his parents perfectly. Because you and I don't. But then, when he starts going into puberty and all this kind of stuff, like he had prostitutes at his feet. And he never lusted them. He never used them with his eyes. Why? Because you and I do that. But he obeys perfectly in our place as a real human at each stage. He never cheats, right? This is what goes on in the wilderness when Satan tempts him, if you're familiar with this, right? He, he goes out, he's fasting, and Satan comes and says, hey, why don't you turn this stone into bread? That did not, I didn't understand that test until I got this. What was he doing? He was telling Jesus, don't be, don't be fully human. Kind of tap into your divinity, get yourself out of suffering, change this into, change this into bread for yourself, and he refuses he says, I won't cheat. I'm going to resist Satan. I'm going to trust my Father at a complete human level. I will not cheat. And he does. He resists Satan's temptation completely without ever cheating. Because you and I get into temptation all the time. 
And we need to stand in his righteousness. He doesn't use a resource that isn't available to us because that wouldn't be fully human. Have you ever looked up and, and thought, man, it's just hard to be obedient and the, and the faithful and the mundane when nobody else notices? I do. Man, like, some of you realize this, I'm going to get out of college. I don't know, you're going to be sitting at your house all alone after just a boring day, and you're like, why does any of this matter? Like, nobody's watching. Or you're going to be changing diapers and folding laundry, and you just think nobody cares. And we just get so discouraged in the mundane. The only thing that I care about is if my acts of obedience get noticed and I get praised for it, then I'll be righteous, right? But think about this. What did Jesus do for like 20 years of his life? It's kind of crazy. We don't know. He just hid himself in Nazareth. He was just like an ordinary carpenter that nobody noticed. And he just obeyed his mom and his dad and just did kind of mundane stuff. He like picked up the toys for his brothers when they left them around, or sometimes he did. Whatever perfect love looked like in very ordinary ways, he did it. Why? Because you and I struggle to obey in the ordinary. It's just not exciting enough. So Jesus did it for us. Jesus sat in horrible, boring sermons, and he always responded with perfect love for his Father. He does. Sometimes they were singing songs that were about him, and they were like, oh, Right, and the man, the God man is next to them, and they're bored by what they're saying. And Jesus still responds with perfect worship, because you and I sit so many worship service and are thinking about like when the playoffs start, and we just need His obedience to cover us. You ever get anxious about the future? I do. Like you don't know what's coming after graduation. Guess what? Jesus lived not knowing what tomorrow is going to bring you. And he trusted his father's father. Jesus had to trust his father perfectly and live by faith in what was coming the next day that he didn't know. Because you and I don't do that perfectly. He did it in our place. How, like, how can you have comfort um, that someone who commits suicide is still a Christian? Because Jesus died perfectly trusting his father in our place. So our death, even if it's just hurtful and awful by our own sin. His perfect death covers us. Over and over again, Jesus is our human perfect obedience and we stand in it. So the great evangelist Dwight Moody, I'm going to start bringing to a close. Dwight Moody is awesome. Don't let anything that I say uh, take away from his awesomeness, okay? But he has this quote that he used a lot kind of like shame people into obedience. And here's what it says. It says, he kind of posts He said, the world is yet to see what God can do with a man fully consecrated to him. Right? The world hasn't seen what God can do with a man that's fully devoted to him. Okay, that is heresy. The world has seen one man fully devoted to God. And he saved the world. So you don't have to. And neither do I. He has been perfect. He has defeated death. He has defeated Satan. Which means that's not your job. You rest in his perfect work, and then you live faithfully out of that. And the last thing that means, and this is where we'll kind of dive in tomorrow, so I just want to give you a teaser. The incarnation really does mean Jesus wants to be with you. This is called the Emmanuel Principle in the Bible. God with us. I mean, all throughout the Bible, you just find God, he keeps wanting to be with his people, even though they keep screwing up. Right? He's walking with Adam and Eve in the garden of the cool of the day. They sin. They're out of the garden. What does God? God keeps showing up. Pillar of fire. Then they're in tents. So God takes a tent. Then, they're, then they have real houses. So God takes a temple. God somehow keeps wanting to be with his people. And then he becomes human. So that he can know us. And so that we can know him. He just wants to be with you. And we find that so hard to believe. This is why most of the, the, the heresies in the first century around Jesus, they struggled to believe his humanity. They, they all thought he was divine. Struggled to be humanity. Why? Because it's just so hard to believe. It is so hard to believe that Jesus wants to be with me in my sin, in my depression, in my same-sex struggle, in my fill-in-the-blank. Yes, he wants to be with you. Like, look at the incarnation. That's what he wants to do. Jesus fell in love with us. 
It's going to do whatever it takes to be with us. If you look in the garden, right, what's the first temptation? Adam, fully man. And the temptation is, he wants to be God. He's not satisfied. He wants to be God, so he takes the fruit and he sins. What is Jesus? Jesus is fully God. Think about this. He wants to be man so that he can save us and be with us. That is amazing. That's what we'll dive into tomorrow. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for, still sounds crazy, but by the coming of man, with all of our infirmities, with all of our sickness, with all of our weakness, you came to heal us, you came to be like us, and you today could make us like yourself. Uh, we struggle to believe that every day. I pray that we've tasted a little bit more of the beauty of the God in heaven, and that you would help us to trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all. Sorry, three minutes late.